Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I'm going to be stretched to the limit because we're talking black holes. So this will be maybe the nature or life aspect of, uh, we're getting some philosophies from probably some theology too, but uh, today I'm joined with Dr. Sean Ressler. He is an astrophysicist. Uh, he got his PhD from Berkeley now, currently, he's at uh, UC Santa Barbara in a research position, and uh, his area of expertise is black hole accretion. And so we're going to figure out what the heck that means. We're going to get into all sorts of nitty gritty stuff. I'm super pumped for it. I'm ready to, to look like a fool. Got to be a fool before you can be wise. So ready to do that right now. Dr. Sean, thanks for coming on, man. No problem. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, th- I'm I'm really excited about this one because, uh, well, as we talked about uh, off screen, usually I write like a, an outline for my guests. I can kind of get a grip uh, grip on their work, and you sent me some videos, and I just couldn't even get it. So I'm excited to just jump in right here with you. First, first things first. Uh, well, let's go with what's a what is a black hole? So a black hole. So I, I have given public talks before where I, I say this, I make the statement at the beginning that black holes are the most boring thing in the universe. Okay. So they only have two properties, like two things describe a black hole and that's it. So every black hole, so with these two, so the properties are mass and spin. Okay. So like once you know the mass and the spin of the black hole where spin is how fast it's rotating, then you know everything about the black hole and every black hole with the same mass and the same spin are exactly the same. Interesting. There's a sense in which they're the simplest and most boring objects in the universe. Yeah. Well, it's really what is around them that that's the really cool thing. Okay. Well, uh, I've heard someone say that there was charge. Is, is there charge to a black hole? That is true. Black holes do technically, or they can technically have charge, but they all, but in reality, they never do. Because you can imagine if there was just something sitting there with this massive amount of positive charge, all it would do is attract a bunch of negative charge. Okay. And negative charge would fall in and then it would eventually. Oh. So literally that is never considered in any of these models. Like people do like hardcore general relativistic calculations where general relativity is Einstein's theory of gravity, which describes how, what really black holes are. Yeah. So I should, I should describe what black holes are more than just they have mass and spin. So a black hole is, Basically, it's a point. It's infinitely dense, zero size point of mass, and it could be any amount of mass, but it's infinitely dense. And this happens when there's so much gravity in an object 
that any outward force cannot support the weight. So eventually gravity just wins over everything and it collapses into this point. And this point is infinitely dense and there's a radius. At, so the point, the black hole itself is technically infinitely small, but the mass that it has determines this, what's called the event horizon radius. Mm-hmm. So the event horizon is the point at which even light itself cannot escape, which sounds strange at first because you don't really usually think of light as being affected by gravity, but it is. And so light, light cannot escape from the gravity at this radius. So it's called the event horizon. And that gives the black hole an effective size. And just from the mass of the black hole and the spin, you can determine what this size is. Okay. And, and that's, um, again, like you said, that's by not by like measuring the black hole itself, but, but by looking at the event horizon and all the stuff happening on the outside of the black yeah. hole. So everything within the event horizon you, we can never know about. Yeah. And, and that's where you get into your specialty of black hole accretion and like the fluid dynamics and the models of, is that, is that right? Yeah. So okay. I'll just define what accretion is. Cause it's, it's a word that I use so much that but a lot of people don't even know what I'm talking about when I say I do black hole accretion. It's sort of the, what I throw out when it's like, what do you do? Oh, black hole accretion. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Um, but accretion is, it's the process by which the black hole gains mass. Mm. So in other words, like it eats gas that's falling inwards and that's just called accretion. And so usually this happens, like, I don't know if, if, is that image in the back background, is that visible to the audience? No, it's just, uh, just yeah. what they can see now just kind of looks cool. Uh, you can okay. kind of see it. If you look down by Sean's name, there's a black hole here and the rest is the uh, event horizon or something. Yeah. It's, it's like an artist depiction. Yeah. They're usually <laughs> way better than anything that we can create from our simulations just because right. we don't have any art. A lot of us don't have very many artistic quali- uh, qualities. Yeah, but in a lot of these images, you see like this, this like disky thing that's spiraling around and going inwards, and so that's generally how the gas falls in. It falls in in these spiral patterns, like it's literally just like water going down the drain mm-hmm. in the toilet or whatever. How it spirals in, it's the same same exact thing, where the stuff coming in is like sort of rotating in a way, and then it just spirals inwards towards the black hole, and they call that a cre- an accretion disk. Okay. So the broad field that I work in is called accretion disk theory. Accretion disk theory. Okay. I've, I was, uh, this blew my mind when I was in grade school and they were talking about gravity and space. And yeah, we always think of, or we used to think of gravity as like pulling, but it's really like a space pushing. And, and then they, I don't know if they dropped this or if I saw a video, but there's like a, a cloth or like a trampoline and you put like a lead ball in the middle and then you roll some balls around it. And they're like, look, yeah. this is, it's bending space and time. And, and that's kind of like what Einstein discovered yeah, and helped us, exactly. helped us understand. What yeah, is it like that, space that, bending in on itself or something? So that's the, that's what's called general relativity, the theory mm-hmm. of general relativity. So Einstein, Einstein had like, I think, what is it called? His miracle year. Um, he was like 20 something like young, oh. 20, late early twenties. And he did these three, Three basically that three things that deserve to win the Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize for one of them. Yeah, it wasn't the the general relativity, uh, but so general relativity. Yeah, that picture of the ball on the trampoline is how gravity works in this in this framework. It's seen not really as a force like this. Like this was what Newton, like Newton's 
Newton's theory of gravity was sort of like you had this this thing over this ball over here, this ball over here, and somehow they magically communicated, and they knew that they should be attracted to each other, and mm-hmm. so they would uh, come closer and closer. But so a lot of people were sort of they thought this was eerie. They called it spooky action at a distance. I think right, right. used. So there were always there's people always concerned about this, and it was like. What are they connected in some by with some like mechanical rod that we can't see what's going on? Hmm. And Einstein had this idea that it's not that they're magically communicating, it's that they're all sitting in this like trampoline, and that one ball is like weighs down the trampoline, so then the other ball that's not as massive will like fall around inwards or just otherwise be deflected by the curvature of the trampoline. And then yeah. you, uh, the problem is that that's like a 1D picture. Right, right. What's happening is it's in 3D, so it's really impossible to visualize like the full like three-dimensional trampoline, which is gets really which why, where it gets really confusing. Yeah, I've tried to picture that before and it does, it really messes with me cuz I'm like I'm, I'm pretty sharp, maybe I can think of it, but it's like a trampoline and a trampoline and a trampoline. Yeah. Like in every direction. Like it's so weird to think about, man. It really blows my mind. Uh but so what what I always thought and and obviously it's wrong, but was like black holes are like this big scary thing that's sucking things in, and it really really just it 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 gets anything in its way. And then uh, prepping for our conversation, so pretty recently, they were saying no, it's not like extra strong. Yeah. It's, it if if like a neutron star collapses into a black hole, what it has like the same pull or pull right? It has like the yeah. same gravitational yeah. force. Is that right? Yeah. As long as none of the mass escapes. So if, 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 for instance, the sun was a black hole right now, it just instantly became a black hole. Yeah. Other than the fact that we would no longer get light and we'd all die of a cold, uh, a cold death. Right. We would orbit around in the same fashion. Nothing would change in terms of our orbit. Okay. What makes black holes unique is really how close you can get to them. Hmm. Like if you're on the surface of the sun, you're going to have some intense gravity, but it's not going to be anything crazy. But now if you imagine if all that mass was contained in a, I think it's like a kilometer or something, if it was a black hole, yeah, then you could get incredibly close and you would have these weird effects where like the gravity on your feet would be way stronger than the gravity on your head. And so you would just get ripped apart by the intense gravity. And then also other cool things like time dilation, like time would move slower. Yeah. Okay. So that's getting so... That's so weird. But so um, the collapsing down, I think it's called like the Schwarzschild radius or something like that. Yeah. Like- Schwarzschild radius is the event horizon radius for a non-spinning black hole. Oh, a non-spinning. Yeah. The, the, the only difference when it's spinning is it gets reduced by like a factor of two or something. Oh, okay. It's just but- the Schwarzschild is usually just called the Schwarzschild radius is ascent as the event horizon radius for, for a, for non-spinning black hole. I, I okay. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you, you sent me a, uh, a Ted talk and, and the lady was talking about, I, I should know her name. I was too busy trying Andrea to guess. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Can, can, Nobel Prize. can you say it one more time? Andrea guess. Okay. And, and she was talking about the, the Schwarzschild uh, radius. And like, if it's like, if we compacted the earth down to like a sugar cube, that would be it would it'd be a black hole then because yeah. it, it's got to be like compressed to this point. Yeah. And so the greater the mass, the the less it's going to have to be compressed. Like the bigger the the greater the mass, the bigger the, the black hole. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. But then someone else I was listening to was saying that like you couldn't do that. Like if, if you, if you had some kind of machine, because I, I like philosophy, so we can make up uh, machines yeah. whenever you had a black hole machine or whatever compressor yeah. and yeah. you compressed uh, the earth down to a, a, a sugar cube. And like technically or theoretically it's a black hole, but someone was saying you can't do that because it doesn't, it wouldn't actually have enough mass and not enough mass to actually be a black hole. I don't, there's pot, what they may be referring to is something called Hawking radiation. Okay. Which is, there's a certain point if a black hole is too small, it can actually evaporate. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, yeah. Okay. yeah. It can evaporate by Hawking radiation, which is something that I don't completely understand myself. Mm-hmm. It's sort of something that you never really use in practice. It's almost like physics philosophy, though it's, it really is physics. It's just like, I th- like it's like Hawking being like, eh, well, what would happen if this? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> that's why well, I bring it up, man. That's that's my I love that. Just the woo woo crazy stuff out yeah. there. There yeah. are there are plenty of like legit physicists who get sort of they put they get like pushed more and more towards that direction until everything they put out. You're like, what the heck are yeah. they doing? Like they don't even publish in like papers anymore. They just write it up on the Internet. Yeah, like, and they go I'm on Joe Rogan, and yeah, and I learn it. Yeah, yeah, because when you have yeah. Pinner, you can do anything. Uh, yeah, but yeah, Hawking radiation. I mean, it's a legit thing. It's just, it's like if you had so in quantum mechanics, there's this thing where nothing is not really nothing. I know. There, yeah, it's so frustrating. There's uh, particles that can just pop into and out of existence, but it's because nothingness is unstable, right? Yeah, it's 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 like there's particles can pop into and out of existence, but they have to pop up in pairs, like a like an electron and an anti-electron at the same time. Okay, everything is conserved. Chart. There's no like all of a sudden there's now there's no new positive charge or anything. The net charge is zero. The net everything is zero. Yeah, and so that happens like right outside the event horizon, and then one of the particles goes in and one of the particles goes out, and there's a way that instead of like net zero gain there's actually the black hole loses energy by it like one of the particles has negative energy and the other particle has positive energy yeah and then the, the particle that's positive energy escapes the one that has negative energy goes in and so the black hole loses energy which is essentially equivalent to mass in terms of the black hole okay. and so the black hole shrinks a little bit and for very small black holes like what the earth would be it this process is really efficient at causing the black hole to shrink okay so it would just like evaporate into nothingness. Uh, but for larger black holes, it's completely negligible. Okay. Like, like any astrophysical black hole, this the process for it to evaporate would take well beyond the length of the universe, the, the age of the universe. Okay. So so um, in researching this, I, I saw that there are at least two types of black holes. There's like the supermassive black hole and then like the, the common just run-of-the-mill yeah. black hole. Stellar mass size black hole. What, what's it called? Stellar mass size. Stellar mass size. Is that because it, they come from like neutron stars or? Well, they come from collapsing stars at the end of their life. Okay. So massive stars generally when they die, they either turn into something like a neutron star or a black hole. And the only difference is the amount of mass in the core that survives. So if something doesn't have quite enough mass to become a black hole, it becomes a neutron star. It's because like the the mass or the the force of the gravity uh, 
can't overcome the energy of the neutrons or something? Yeah. So there's this thing called like degeneracy pressure that keeps the neutron star from collapsing. Mm-hmm. And this is, so it's, it's, it's completely based on quantum mechanics. So this is kind of cool instance of where you think of quantum mechanics of being like these tiny things that you can barely observe, yeah. but like a gigantic star that's entirely supported by quantum mechanical things. So it's, it's pretty, it's like, that's kind of like the craziest physics in real life that you experience. It's like neutron star. Yeah. Holy cow. A neutron star. It's so like the nexus of the tiny and the gigantic. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, there's, I don't know. In like chemistry, you learn about electrons have energy levels mm-hmm. and basically you get to a point where all the energy levels are filled up and you can, so in order you, so you know how like there's this discrete energy levels and to compress, you would have to go to some, like a higher energy, but there's oh, yeah. no room for these particles to go in terms of like the quantum mechanical energy state. So this acts as a quote unquote pressure to keep it from collapsing. Okay. And that's if that's, if the mass <clears throat> that's like, if the degeneration force isn't strong enough, then it, it resists that. That if process the of generosity force is strong enough, then is, it will fight against gravity and survive. Yeah. Well, okay. Why would it be strong? Like, uh, give me, can you give me an, uh, two examples? Like one where it's not strong enough and turns into a black hole and then one where it is strong enough. What would make the one that's strong enough, strong enough to resist becoming it a black hole? It doesn't have enough mass. So that's it's, what happens is. There's this maximum mass for a neutron star. We don't know exactly what it is. People are very actively trying to figure out. It's something around like 1.4 times the mass of the sun is like the maximum mass for a neutron star. So if there's more than that, then it will become a black hole. Because what happens is, so it's this kind of crazy thing in general relativity. So not only, once you add mass, there's the pressure supporting gravity is an energy. So pressure is, is like an effective form of energy and energy is an effective form of mass. So the more pressure you have, you're actually exerting more gravity. So eventually you just cross the limit where you're, you increase the pressure, but that's also increasing the gravity. So it's this runaway process where it just collapses like in an instant almost. Yeah. That's so interesting. You get right up to the limit. And then if you just like poke it, it'll, That's so interesting. Oh, well, so that actually is why uh, this dude I was listening to said that we couldn't become a black hole ourselves is because that neutron star, uh, what, what you just talked about, we wouldn't have like enough mass or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's probably talking past each other because one is more like theoretical. The yeah. Schwartz field is like, like forcibly compress the neutron star somehow. You could yeah. form a black hole that way. Okay, okay. So if we had our our, our compressor machine that made yeah. me into a black hole, you could do that with a neutron star too. Yeah. That was res- resisting. Okay. Yeah. So when a star... It depends on how this this, this machine works. It's a good machine. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Here. <laughs> when, uh, when a star explodes or collapses, it, it does like kind of both. Doesn't it like explode and then... Yes. So the core collapses, the outside part explodes. Why why does that happen? So there's so the basic picture is these are called core collapse supernovae. 
Okay. Supernovae is the explosion, and the core collapse is the black hole collapsing. Then what happens is like a star, like the a star starts out, it's like the sun right now. It's burning hydrogen in the center. So by burning, I mean the hydrogen atoms at the center of the sun are fusing. They're, it's so dense and so hot that the 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 like there's a helium at or a hydrogen atom and a hydrogen atom they get pushed together really strongly until poof they become a helium atom and that's that's fusion yeah. as opposed to fission which is separating uh, an atom right. or splitting that's what happens in a nuclear reactor yeah okay. and fusion is what like cold fusion is like the secret to infinite energy on Earth basically yeah but, cleaning and all that yeah. You know, figure out how to do but so this is hot fusion in the sun it's like ridiculously hot so they the the particles are able to penetrate there so the particles don't want to combine but the 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 heat makes them move really fast they break through their barriers and they combine they form a helium atom or helium nucleus and this process through which they combine releases extra energy and that is what powers the star causes all this radiation to hit us and that's what keeps it from collapsing is this process. So it keeps doing this mm-hmm. over and over again as a, for a long time until it runs out of heat, hydrogen. Cause you, you, you only have a certain number of hydrogen atoms in the, or hydrogen nuclei in the star. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a thing. So, Oh wait, real quick. Okay. Um, does that depend on the size of the star or could like, could like our sun have more hydrogen than a, uh, a star way bigger than it? Is it just kind of a, a luck of the draw? It definitely depends on the size of the star. I'm not okay. a stellar expert, but I believe the more massive the star is, the faster it burns. Oh, okay. And the, the, the lower mass the star is, the slower it burns. But don't quote me completely on that. I, uh, the funny thing is at Santa Barbara... I'm surrounded by a bunch of stellar experts. Like they just do stars all day. And I like go to these meetings and I'm like, I don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Dang. And you're like, you're like the villain to them. You're like the anti-star guy. You're like where the stars go to die. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the stellar remnant. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Okay. So, Oh wait, real again, another one. Sorry to ask you stellar stuff and feel free to say you don't know, but, uh, the size of the star do- doesn't necessarily mean it's going to burn hotter, does it? Can because like a neutron star doesn't don't those burn hot or no? They, I have no idea. They're not really burning anymore. They're sort of just a big lump of mass doing nothing. Oh, weird. So, but the 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 burning temperature does definitely depend on the mass, but also determines how long it lasts. Okay. You can classify stars. There's this crazy classification system that makes absolutely no sense. It's because it's it was astronomy. Everything in astronomy is like that because it's a bunch of people like 150 years ago, like staring up in the sky. Well, that looks like a B. That looks <laughs> like a G. And then so they write it on classify into these these things like this is an A type, B type, C type. And then you figure out later that these types have no correlation with the actual physics. And it's just like random classifications that you have to then teach forever. And you've just inherited them, so you're not changing them now. Yeah, that's been, yeah. that's a lot of things in astronomy. Yeah, wow. And they're not very creative either. It's like type A, type B, type C, <laughs> type 1, type 2, type 3. Yeah. And then you get type 1A, type 1, 1B. 
Oh no. Like, oh, that's the big, the big, uh, leap. Yeah. But so the stars are classified like ABC, whatever. And these are just effectively, they correspond to the temperature of the outside of the star. So the temperature of the part of the star that we actually see, and these, the, the, that directly relates to the mass of the star. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. It, it makes sense. You know, it burns to burn hotter. You need more fuel going on, but that's yeah. going to burn quicker because it's hotter. Yeah. So, but what generally what happens in most of these stars is then, so you burn all the hydrogen, you fuse all the hydrogen into helium, but, and then, so you run out of fuel to keep the star supported and the core will collapse a little bit until it becomes even hotter and then it can fuse the helium atoms or the helium nuclei. Whoa. And so then the helium will pop together and form carbon or whatever, like their various forms of burning. And so then it keeps doing that until it runs out of helium and so on and so on. Oh, okay. It's doing that and keep collapsing. The core will collapse. A lot of the times the outer part will expand and become like this, like a red supergiant. If you ever heard like a red supergiant, mm-hmm. that's helium burning, I believe. Okay. So that's in the helium burning stage. So, but that's, it's a giant because the, the radius outside expands, but inside the core has actually shrunk and yeah. is at a higher temperature. That's so weird. So, okay. Why the, the core is collapsing because it's running out of hydrogen. So it's moving to helium then. Yeah. There, I'm sure there's probably, a, is there a name for that when it's like that first collapse from, Hydrogen to helium? Probably. Yeah. Some A type, some weird. I don't know what the, like, the, you mean like the transition, you mean like what the star looks like during that transition? Well, the transition generally happens so fast in terms of the stellar life cycle that all you see is either hydrogen or helium burning. There's like. I mean, like, there's got to be like, it's probably called something when it switches, uh, right? I mean, it's called. You mean like each individual stage or? Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's like red supergiant, blue supergiant. Oh, that's just the name of it. It's like, oh, yeah. it's it, the core's collab. It's switching. Now it's a red yeah. supergiant. It depends on what the mass of what it turns into. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So then eventually the core stops burning. There's no more helium left. Uh, is it like, is it, um, is it gaining carbon when it's doing yeah. the? Yeah. Does that affect the, the core at all? Yeah, because eventually then it will start fusing the carbon. Oh, okay. And so this process just keeps happening until you get to iron. So iron is like element. Oh, oh, great. What what element is iron? Thirty two. Am I wrong? Dude, that's uh, a long time ago for me. Nico, Nico. Some th- this one guy, this one Indian guy, once told me like the best way to memorize periodic table was to put it into a string and then memorize the string. But it's like a completely nonsensical word. It's it's like Heli oh. Al Sips Clark. I don't know why it works. Like it actually works. It's really easy <laughs> to memorize, but it like makes absolutely no sense. Dang. But yeah, I think it's like thirty or thirty-two. I don't know. It's but it, anyway, the it, it everything fuses until it reaches iron, and so then you have an iron core. And iron doesn't fuse. Like it, it nothing hot enough to fuse that. It well, it could fuse, but it would not actually produce any energy. So uh-huh. that's where the limit between fusion being the source of energy versus fission. Everything above iron to get energy out, you, f- you, f- what's the, fizz? <laughs> you fizz it. Yeah. Uh, it, it. Fission is the process by which you release energy. So that's how nuclear reactors work. They get these radioactive, higher 
mass elements and just bombard it with particles and it splits and there's energy. So, so I know like just from people talking about fusion and fission, that fusion is much more desirable. It's, it seems like it's colder or you can do it at cold level. It's, it's less like extreme. It's just really hard to do and no one can do it or whatever. But it seems like for a star to move, move from fusion to fission is it's in trouble. Well, it doesn't move to fission. That's the thing is like, it's imagine like there's this like U curve and you're moving down on the, from the left, like say the left is, I wish I could like draw on this, but like going to the left, going down from the left is going from hydrogen to, to iron. Eventually you're gaining, you're releasing energy during this process. And on the left or on the right, you can do the same thing starting from some crazy heavy radioactive element and you keep fizzing until you fizzing until you reach iron. So iron is the most stable element. So it doesn't want to do either of these things. It just wants to stay at iron. Everything wants to be iron. That's essentially what the interesting is. And so you get to iron and it says, okay, now I'm stuck. I, there's no process by which I can get energy. So then it just collapses completely. Okay, so, so unless it doesn't have enough mass, and it becomes a neutron star or a white dwarf or something. When when, yeah, that's good. There's so many. A white dwarf is basically just like a smaller neutron star. Well, why? I should probably know this. Why is it a neutron? Why is it called neutron stars? Because oh, that's that's a question that I should also know. I mean, it's it's because the electrons and protons at such a high pressure, the electrons and protons sort of combine together to make neutrons. Oh yeah. Dang. Okay. That's sweet. And they release. That's the process by which, so that's imagine like, Oh, I can't fuse anymore. What do I do? Well, I can go buying these protons and electrons and that will release a little bit of energy that that's like the next stage. And then, okay. then there are all these neutrons. It's, it's kind of so like, isn't a hundred percent neutrons. That's sort of a misconception, right. but it's a yeah. lot of neutrons. That makes sense. It's like, uh, to me, I'm just thinking it's like when you're hungry and your body is just like eat itself and it's like, yeah, well, it's exactly. eating all the excess fat and then it's yeah. starting to move on to your protein and then it's going to like your organs and weird stuff. And you're, is that, is that like a good analogy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like you, 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 you use everything that you can until you can't. Yeah. And then you become a neutron star and you explode just like it happens to us uh, when we're, when we're hungry. Yeah. Yeah. The explosion is not. So the process by which the star explodes is not extremely well understood. It's believed to be so in the process of like, for instance, in the process of like combining the electrons and protons, there's these things released called neutrinos. Yeah. And these neutrinos, they're incredibly small. We don't know what exactly their mass is, but they're these small particles that are neutral. So neutrino, I think it's just like little neutral one is like the root of the, the word. And we get blasted by these from the sun, right? Yeah, they just the go, they just go the through us. They go through yeah. the earth. They're, they, they interact so weakly with everything that they just almost do nothing. They yeah. just travel extremely fast because they have very little mass and they just whiz around. And there's various types. But the idea is that there's so much energy released by neutrinos in the process of collapsing because of all these reactions that are taking place that these neutrinos, there's so many of them that they add energy into the surrounding gas outside of the core enough to make it explode. Whoa. 
Dang, dude, that's crazy. Because the neutri- or neutrinos, it's like a little nothing ball. Yeah, and, but like, they're, they're the ones doing it. It's Holy ten, cow! Ten times the amount of energy that is in a supernova explosion is released in neutrinos. Dang, it's it's just like this incredible amount of energy. Do those get blasted out into the universe too? Yeah. So we observe. There was a supernova that we observed via neutrinos. Recently, or yeah, I forget what the name of it is, but you can see the neutrino signal before you even see the. the Because they're so fast. Yeah. Yeah, because they're they're tiny in the trouble. That's crazy. When I first learned about neutrinos. It, it like really messed with my view of myself. I really hated it. And I didn't, I didn't want to think about it. Cause I just felt like I was this, this big, like chain link fence or whatever, that things are just passing through me. I'm like, no, I'm a solid man. Dang it. I don't like neutrinos. But as I heard people talk about them more, I, I came to like them a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, you can like wrap your body around a Wi-Fi router and people still get internet. So <laughs> I, I don't, I, you all time yeah the the it's just so weird when you go like subatomic with stuff um and it's cool I, this is why what you were saying earlier about like neutron stars and stuff uh the the, the subatomic level the I'm, I'm forgetting now uh quantum and like the huge massive scale it's so interesting that that you're dealing with all this stuff like new neutrinos are tiny but then you're you're talking about this giant thing that's sucking in and accreting or uh, engaged in accretion, this huge black hole. It's so crazy to think about like that exists in our universe. Yeah. The same universe where we have cars and dogs. There's this thing that's, it has like a, it has a mass, but it doesn't have any like point. It's like one point in space. It's like a, a eternally, like not eternally, but like it's, it's reaching the point of no pointness or something. Yeah. Sort of. It's like, isn't it like still shrink? Like if you jumped in it, this was crazy too. So I I was researching this. If I went in like head first, I would be like elongated to like thinner than a hair. And I'd be like spaghettified. And I could not believe that was a real term spaghettification. I heard Sean Carroll say that on Joe Rogan, like a couple years back. And I thought he was making a joke. He's like, this is a technical term spaghettification. And they both laughed. And I was like, Oh, that's funny. And then I hear actual other PhDs talking about spaghettification. You're like turning into a piece thinner than a piece of spaghetti. I think there was an era. There was like a shift in like the twenties or something when people started trying to have fun with naming things Yeah, like quarks, like the name quark came from Finnegan's wake in, uh, uh, written by James Joyce. Okay. And like they name them like, the top down truth beauty cork like like and like things like spaghettification yeah they're just having fun because it's at the limits of our understanding it's bonkers they're like you know we don't have to just use like latin roots and stuff we can do whatever we want i like it i like it's like yeah what would a kid call that if you told a kid hey spaghettified yeah let's do that i love it so I wanted to talk about uh, like supermassive black holes because that's apparently something different. And yeah, people say that they're at the, at the center of maybe at the center of every galaxy. Yes. Is, is, is the supermassive black hole, the thing that's making the galaxy look all cool and twisted? No, 
Oh, dang it. So that is correlation, not causation. <laughs> okay. The reason it's at the center is the same reason that we're all orbiting the center. Because of the trampoline. There's all this dark matter. Oh, I was going to ask you about dark matter, yeah. dude. So I can tell you. So the funny thing about dark matter is that we know everything about it except what it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, we know where it is. We know what it does. But we have no clue what it actually is. So some people, uh, I'm, I'm here in Illinois, and we have the Fermilab. And they have yeah. switched from using their collider, because there's a bigger one, to they want to be like the number one people in dark matter. And I got a tour uh, a couple of years back and they were talking about dark matter. And I, I talked about it on Facebook and then some dude was like, yeah, I guess if you believe in dark matter, and I was like, well, I have no reason not to, I don't, I listen to them. And then people were saying how it's like uh phlogiston or like uh, every now and then, you know, you don't have an explanation for something and you name it like uh, in, in Thor, in the second Thor movie, a terrible movie, the red stuff was oh, called ether. Yeah. ether uh yeah. like that used to be a thing and now we realize that there's nothing called ether or whatever so like how do we know about dark matter like what it are you are you sure like you know you're a dark matter guy you're like yes there's dark matter i'm i mean i i don't study dark matter at all <laughs> but like, you believe in it interest in it but i mean it's very clear that there's something dark that we can't see with light that is having gravitational influence so if okay. you take that that's essentially the definition of dark matter. Like the definition is so vague that you can't say it's not real. Okay. It's like, just it's whatever like thing. Saying, oh, there's these like crazy quark things that just go around and whiz around and they have gravity, but not do all these things. Like we have a bunch of theories that sound crazy, like axions and wimps. So that's uh, another instance of naming. So that's weakly interacting massive particles, wimps. It's like an in joke. Okay. Um, That's a pretty good well, name. I like that one. But that, those are two different things, really. It's like the presence of dark matter and what actually composes dark matter. Mm. Okay. And most of the dark matter theorists, like this is this is kind of my uh, cynical view, is every time I see one of the explain like one of the talks about what the particle is that makes up dark matter, it's like they propose a certain type of particle. And then they observe something and say, oh, it's not that type of particle. Oh, wait, I can tweak my model by like this one parameter. And now, now test. And then they're like, okay, fine, we'll test again. And then they test it. Oh, nope, it wasn't that either. <laughs> like, wait, I can tweak it again. And then like, yeah. no, test. And then, 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 then the observer's like, really, we have to test again for this stupid model? <laughs> Give it a rest. But I mean, one of them has to be right. There's just so many different models that it's ridiculous. Okay. Really hard to constrain, but I think it's definitive that there's, unless we have no understanding of gravity whatsoever, which is completely unlikely, mm -hmm. then there's this large mass of matter that is not interacting with anything else electromagnet or electromagnetically, or it's not creating light. And I, I, I think I've heard that there's more, there's supposedly more dark matter than non-dark matter in the universe. Yes. That, that's crazy. Is there like... So like what's holding the galaxy, just to get back to the galaxy, like yeah. what's holding the galaxy together, what's causing the spiral around? There's this thing called a halo of dark matter. That's just this diffuse spread of matter that we can't see that otherwise the rotation of the galaxy and everything or all the stars wouldn't make any sense. Huh. So you just you just know it's there because you can we know how stars orbit mass. 
Like it's Newtonian physics. Okay. You don't even need like general relativity to do this. And you just see like stars orbiting. You're like, what, what are they orbiting? And they have a certain profile. Like you, there's a star at a certain radius that's rotating at a certain speed. You go to a smaller radius. It's rotating at a different speed. And that profile tells you also not just how much mass is in the center, but how much, how it's distributed. Yeah. It turns out it's not just like this massive amount of stuff in the center, which you could say, oh, it's just this gigantic black hole, but it's like this diffuse amount of gas. So yeah. for instance, the black hole at the center is a million times the mass of the sun, but that, that amount of gravity is like completely negligible to us at this, the distance we are. Right. We're like eight kiloparsecs away where parsec is a really long unit that I don't <laughs> I don't know how to describe it in other words. It's just really long. I've, I I didn't know that that was a real word until researching for this because I knew that uh, like Han Solo traveled something in like the Kessel Run in like twelve parsecs or whatever. But that was a real thing. Parsecs. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what the actual definition is. Um, it's like ten to the eighteen centimeters. If that means anything. All right. So a lot of centimeters. So rollers. do, do, well, dude, I guess since we don't know a lot about dark matter, I was going to ask if like the super massive black hole can suck in dark matter, but do we even have any yeah, clue on that? It should because it's okay. gravity. So dark matter behaves like other matter, just not in electromagnetically. What was that? In terms of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. So like it could pass right through us. Okay. Because like gravity is like most of the forces that we experience on a day-to-day day-to-day in our day-to-day life is not gravity other than the thing that's keeping us connected to the ground. Yeah. Because like all the things that hurt, the things we hit, like those are like the reason they're solid like that is like the intermolecular forces that are pushing against things like how we're like you said, we're sort of like a chain link fence. Yeah. Like we're not really this solid thing. It's not like just solid on solid. It's like, so what exactly causes that? That's like electromagnetic forces between molecules and that. So if you had like this column of dark matter, you would be able to just pass right through it unless it was so massive that it was causing you to gravitationally attract to it. Oh yeah. You have to have so much stuff for gravity to be important that it's like, if you just have a little bit of it, you're, you're never going to know it's there. Right. Cause like you, you have matter. And if I walk past you, I'm right. not like feeling right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, can you explain? I don't know if this is in your area or not, but like there's four forces, right? Yes. Can you just like, do, do you know them off the top of your head? The, the four forces? Yes. <laughs> making, making you go back years here. Okay, yeah. So there's the weak there. Well, the, the ones like if you're including gravity as a force, there's some, it's not obvious that it is a force. Mm hmm. If you're thinking about it in terms of general relativity, gravity isn't really a force because in the terms of like, like the the trampoline, trampoline is gravity. So the trampoline is it's just that's just like geometry of the trampoline. It's not really a right. force between objects. But right. if you're trying to approach it from like the fundamental force, forces of the universe, from which particles exchange information to create forces, then people do consider it a force. It's like and an as if force or something. As a what force? It's like an as if force. Like you just kind of act. Yeah, just for for talking, for communicating. It's as if. Yeah, it's oh, a force. yeah, but but I but also in terms of trying to unify all of physics, 
I think you have to think about it as a force. Okay. At least that's my, my understanding. So there's gravity or not. And then there's the electromagnetic, electromagnetic force, Mm -hmm. which is exchanged by light. So exchanged by photons, which are light particles. So that's what communicates that force. There. So when, when like a magnet, when you have like magnetism, yeah. it's because yeah, so like, a, like a, a magnet and then also like a charged part, like a charged particle attracting another particle. They're, they're the same force really. Cool. Okay. And then you have the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. So the strong nuclear force is what keeps nuclei together. Like if you have an atom at the, the nucleus is like a proton, an electron, maybe a neutron like what what is causing the neutron to stay there like it's not it's not charge it has no charge so why is it stuck there well it's the strong nuclear force so that and even the electron and proton or you can even have like proton 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 like three protons all stuck together like there should be repelling each other but at certain radius the strong nuclear force becomes strong that's why it's (laughs) that's why it's called the strong nuclear force it's because it overcomes all the other forces and it allows these nuclei to stay together but it only acts over a very short distance okay you got to be really close for that strong force what what i guess man what is the strong for like why why what is it what's happening why are why are these particles being stuck together like that i i think that's probably able to be explained better than I can. Okay. I'm, I, I want to say it's not super well understood, but it might be better understood than I would make it seem if I okay. said something like that. Yeah. Um, I, like, cause I took a class in nuclear physics. Like that's, that's basically the, like a graduate level, but that was basically my experience with that. And it was very ad hoc. Like you just, you sort of say, Oh, the force behaves like this kind of not ad hoc, but uh, phenomenological. Sure. So when yeah. you say something's phenomenological, you're basically just modeling our experience of it, not the fundamental what's going on. Right. So if right. you see, like if you saw project like a basketball that somebody threw in the air and you saw the trajectory and you just said, oh, well, I can predict just based on like you plot every point and then you just fit a curve to it and say, well, oh, this is how it behaves. This is how the, the basketball behaves. But you're not actually saying, oh, this is because of gravity and air resistance, like the, the non-phenomenological approach would have been to, okay, well, I know the mass of the basketball. I know it's radius. I know how the air will affect it. And I know gravity of the earth. So I can, in principle, just calculate what it's going to do without ever seeing it. Phenomenological yeah. goes backwards. It yeah. says, oh, I see how the ball behaves. Well, can I predict what another ball would do? And good. so that is what I, my understanding of what we do with strong nuclear force. Okay. But the fundamental understanding is that it's a certain type of particle that, so like photons exchange the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force also has a particle that it exchanges with, um, it exchanges with other, like a proton and neutron and electron. They, they exchange this type of particle, but unlike a photon, which doesn't have any mass, so light doesn't have mass, this force that, this force is exchanged by a particle with mass, which is why it only acts over a short distance. Okay. Because the photon has no mass. It just goes, it goes out to infinity. It just goes forever. Yeah. The particle with mass, it's not able to travel as far. So it works over a short distance. Okay. The name of this particle is escaping me right now. It's, 
it might be something obvious. It's some kind of boson, which is just a type of particle. But I cannot. It's not a Higgs boson, is it? No. Okay, I just pulled I don't that word up. Higgs boson. I don't really know what. I, I don't know either. It just stuck it's in my really head. Important. You're you're crushing it, dude. You're, this is good. What what's the weak force? The weak force has to do with like neutrinos. Okay. And I don't also don't have a good understanding of the weak. Yeah. force. It like never comes up in what I do. Yeah. The only reason it comes up for me is I listened to a ton of Eric Weinstein. Um, yes. And he he was like, one day he was talking to Brett Weinstein, his brother, and was like, I don't get how people can follow Game of Thrones or this show or that show with these complex uh, uh, storylines, but they can't remember that there's four forces. And I was like, dang, man, I should I should remember that there's four forces. So if I ever talk with him, I'd be like, yeah, the four forces, dude, totally. So thanks thanks for just recounting that for us and all the listeners there. If you guys can recount the four forces, then you will also impress Eric Weinstein, maybe. Or if you can, in terms of complicated plot lines, if you can remember the entire plot of the Kingdom Hearts series, that is also incredibly impressive. <laughs> it's, it's right up there with the, the forces. <laughs> uh, well, so, so going back to the supermassive black holes, d- does anyone know, like, what they are? What caused them? How they become supermassive it's debated the weird thing is that you have the stellar mass size black holes which are like one to like 10 maybe times the mass of the sun Uh the supermassive ones are like a million to a billion times the mass of the sun but there's really none in between you don't see intermediate mass black holes wow sort of strange so that sort of rules out or it, it it causes it's possible that we just don't see them because black holes are hard to find if they're not in the center of the galaxy or doing something crazy they're just out there and they're not interacting with anything there could be they could be everywhere because you yeah. don't see them that's the definition they're black yeah and but it's weird that you don't see anything in between because if it was just smaller black holes eating stuff getting larger over time you would expect like a a distribution between Exactly. Yeah, you'd, you'd see a range of them going up. So, so the process by which black hole, supermassive black holes form, might be just a bunch of gas collapsing. Like there's no star. Really. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. Like imagine if you had, like, they, I think this might be what is referred to as primordial black holes. Like imagine if you just had a big, just gas cloud in like even before stars were formed and there's just all this gas. Yeah. Um, And it was uniformly distributed. So there's no like preferential way for gravity to pull anything. But then suddenly something shifts and there's like a little bit over density in one spot. Then the gravity there is stronger than everywhere else. It's going to pull everything in a little bit. But then as things gets closer, gravity gets stronger and it, it collapses even more. So it's this unstable gas cloud configuration, which then collapses. And it depends on the mass of this cloud and how fast everything collapses. But in principle, I think this is my understanding. This is also sort of cosmology kind of stuff. That's not, I don't usually think about black hole formation that much. Yeah. More of like a black hole pragmat or practical. Once the black hole's there, then I'll, then I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. But you just imagine if you had so much gas, like a ridiculous amount of gas, it would it would never even go to the star stage. It would just 
because that's that's also how stars would form. If you had a certain amount of gas that was like you had a you would form stars in various spots and then you that's star formation as it collapses. Because yeah. eventually it would be collapsing, but then it would start fusing and then that would support gravity. And then it like it, when it's fusing, it like catches fire and then that's Yeah. And so you would then have like stars and planets and all this stuff. But if you imagine that the gas cloud is so big and it collapses so fast then gravity just beats out everything. It never forms a star or planet. It just forms this gigantic black hole. Okay. So I'm, I'm thinking like, I don't know why my mind works like this, but I'm thinking like you have a, a big piece of paper and you got marbles distributed, distributed all across them equally. Yeah. And if you like pull down one part yeah, of that, exactly. they're all going to roll down to that and that's going to yeah. make this black hole, but then that's yeah. going to offset the rest of it. You know, if you had this really, really big piece, then it, other marbles are going to get off kilter and they're going to go form another one. And then they're, yeah, yeah. And, and they're just forming everywhere because yeah. one formed. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's okay. a perfect analogy. But why would they not turn into a star? If, if like each localized patch had too much mass. Okay. So it's because maybe the initial condition was just so much gas that it, it, it couldn't even, it just bypassed the star because it's just huge, heavy. Yes. And then, when it's a black hole, like just again for everyone at home and for me trying to figure this out, um, it's so dense that nothing can escape it, not even light. So there's no way it's forming a star because once you reach this point, it's like in infinitely coll- collapsing. Yeah. Is that right? Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. Okay. Dang, man. This is sweet. <laughs> Sorry to, I'm, I'm making you go at the, uh, the limits and the, extremities of your knowledge here because you're oh, okay. focused on accretion but you're, you're really crushing it um can so what made you want to go into accretion more happenstance than anything okay <laughs> I feel like that's the the path of an academic is like it's sort of like a deterministic process like i don't know i don't know if you've read war and peace like how, not, not like seriously in, okay, in well, well, Tolstoy describes like the rise of Napoleon mm-hmm. as something completely outside the control of Napoleon. Like a Napoleon was just going to show up based on history. Like all the previous events of history led up to a Napoleon forming. It's like yeah. Napoleon wasn't that great. He really didn't like Napoleon. I think <laughs> Napoleon was not nobody. He's just some guy that happened to be in the right place at the right time. Right. But I, I feel like that's a lot of what, happens with academics like each individual person seems to have like a a choice in what they work on but what they work on tends to be influenced by who they were interested in working with and then what the interesting problems were at the time when they started because they're everything i've basically come to the conclusion that most things in the field are interesting and once you get into one of them you find them so interesting that you don't want to stop yeah and so you sort of just like it's almost like this random like at first it's random. You're just like, Oh, well that kind of seems interesting. And you start and then, like, Oh, this is really interesting. And then you, you get like sort of narrower and narrower. Yeah. That's Which, my like philosophical view of, of that. That didn't answer the question at all. Well, but, I think it's, I think it's true. And it's also so weird because of where we're at in time that you can be a specialist in this field and not know what your neighbor is working on down the hall and not even like he'd have to explain it to you. Like you'd have to, not like you'd have to explain it to me, but you wouldn't know because you're so specialized in your area because we've come such a far away from like Galileo who like knew everything. I think it's just bonkers how much you can know and then miss out 
because you're like just 10 years deep in studying this one neutrino or whatever. Yes. No, it's definitely very possible. And you would probably get a better explanation than I would because they would assume a bunch of things that I know that I don't actually know. Yeah. Okay. Like you, like the only thing that I can do better than you in that situation would probably be to pretend like I know what they're talking about. <laughs> we well, uh, have some concepts that I wouldn't, that would be really helpful. I knew some words, some, some <laughs> words to, to say at the right moment, but I, I'm particularly bad about that. Knowing like what, what's going on in other fields. Cause I tend to be a kind of person that just likes to focus on what I'm doing Yeah, and just push and in my own field, of course, like I don't ignore what other people in my field are doing. But to actually answer the question of how I ended up here, uh, I was interested in lots of theoretical stuff. Then in undergrad, I just thought the professor that was teaching mechanics was, which mechanics is like how stuff moves under like basic forces, like gravity and other things like that. Mm-hmm. And he was like the coolest guy ever. So I just wanted to work for him. <laughs> and he was working on supernovae, supernova remnants. So the stuff left over from when stars explode, mm-hmm. which wasn't black holes, but that was just what I, I was like, okay, I'm working on this. Then I went to grad school and Berkeley. I love Berkeley. I love the area. And I was like, I want to live in this area. And the guy that I would potentially be working with seemed really cool. And so I made the decision based on those like sort of feelings. And I went there and I started working with this guy. He, he was like, so his name is Elliot Quadert. And then he, he had me start on some like project with stars and magnetic fields for a couple months. And then out of nowhere, he's like, actually, I'm a part of this collaboration that I haven't been contributing that much to, but it's about like black holes and preparing for the event horizon telescope. Would you be interested in that? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> And so then I started working on that and that's where I am. I just kept going in that direction. Well, wow. just real quick, man. Are they, do they have a event horizon telescope? Oh yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, so I, did you not see this about a year ago in the news? The like picture of the black hole, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. 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 The, the, uh, I remember totally. Okay. So that's what that was. Cause yeah. I guess yeah, I, I, my feel, not the actual taking the, telescope but simulations that produce things that look like that that's that's what i thought it was i thought it was um like a rendering from a bunch of pictures or something i remember someone explaining it and being like that's not quite like a picture like we think and i was all deflated but maybe you can you explain like what is that that image i almost put that as our background but yeah, it's not a picture in the sense that it doesn't work in the same way as a camera, but it is a picture in the sense that it's real data. Okay. It's it works by like it they really don't take data in like it's hard to describe this. My my frog just croaked back here and I just want to make sure if anyone heard that I didn't like pass gas or anything. That was my frog. So, he's a bullfrog. <laughs> and he didn't like croak like metaphorically. No, no, he's just <laughs> I think he hears my voice and thinks it's time to, he wants to do battle with me or something, but I'm still the big boss in this, in this office for now. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, it is, it's real data. It's a real picture, just not in the same way that you think of like just taking a picture where you just, you have like, you like, basically you're just capturing where the light comes. Like it's a different process to capture the light and then make it 
like you have to put it through a process so that it looks like an image okay in yeah. in real space okay okay so that's sweet you got that and were you were you involved in that were you like around the periphery like what was the I was, so I'm not involved in that collaboration, though. Most of the people, it seems, in the field are. It's a very large collaboration. And, but I was, that was like, it's one of those things where like every single introduction that I've written for every paper, every talk, you say, well, because of the, it's like one of the easy motivational kind of things. Well, in preparation for the Event Horizon Telescope, we're doing these simulations. Um that's sweet. A lot of motivation because it's like they already put in a bunch of money to this. So it's like, oh, well, you want to support that effort. And, okay. But I'm not in the collaboration itself because the idea of being a big collaboration is really not appealing to me because yeah. it seems like endless meetings and politics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, doesn't sound fun. Yeah. And you can get a lot of the benefit from being outside other than the, the, the actually knowing everything in advance. They did an amazing job of keeping all this stuff secret before they published yeah well this this reminds me of another thing i want to ask you about what um i can't remember the name right now i'm sure you'll know it but, uh when i think it's in Arge argentina when they were they were uh they they picked up on gravity waves i think from two black holes bumping into each other yeah it wasn't just argentina it's like several places okay what's that um, called the livingston international gravitational observatory i think ligo LIGO. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. LIGO. What, when did that something in gravitational? Something. When, when did that happen? A little bit before then, maybe two years ago. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, cause I remember that was pretty crazy. That's one that I was like, that's weird because like our reality like waved through and we didn't know because we're in this reality. And it's like yeah. someone like, you know, put, made a wave in your fishbowl and you couldn't tell cause you're in the fishbowl. But was that something that you were like, pretty geeked up about or was that just like oh that's pretty cool i i thought it was cool i mean i expected it to happen for a while oh okay um i was at a conference when the news came and they just like like ditched half of the day and said okay we're talking about this now yeah like it was kind of fun because yeah. there, there are two people who were part of that collaboration who are like i guess they knew i don't know if they knew how i guess they didn't know because they had scheduled other talks at the time oh yeah that they just scrapped or they moved to a different day but yeah it's a lot of this stuff it's hard to get excited when it's like it's like a slow burn yeah it's like you know it's coming like it starts off you're like oh wow that would be really cool and then it's like yeah and then you hear about it for like four years <laughs> in a row and you're like yeah okay when are we gonna see it when are we gonna see it and then we see it and it's i mean but yeah that's the only reason that i wasn't like oh wow that's amazing just yeah you there's so much anticipation and build up and preparation yeah that like, it would be like like with the event horizon telescope it would have been amazing if we saw something that looked completely different because what we saw looked exactly like what everybody kind of expected yeah if we saw something crazy that would have been really cool but if, if you saw another universe inside there uh, i don't get that excited about uh like that kind of thing for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. I get more like, it's like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, how about, uh, have you seen interstellar? Yeah. Did that, did that like bother you or did that yeah. get you? Was that exciting? 
Like he went into a black hole and decided to go home and work. (laughs) (laughs) Like the whole thing about like humanity is not just a bunch of farmers like trying to survive. It's like there's a higher, higher uh, calling for humanity than just like be an animal that all it cares about is eating and living. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And a lot of physics was kind of accurate, except the crazy stuff at the end. Yeah. Um, I really like that movie. A lot of people, what happens is that anybody who's an expert in something, if there's a movie about it, they all like to just crap on it. Yes. Like, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Wow. That was like, oh. like, it's just, like, it's very easy to seem superior just by criticizing something. Dude. If you're criticizing something, you instantly feel like you're superior to it. Yeah. It's easy. Like, like even what I was just saying with like not being excited about the results, it's like, well, like it was the like one of the most amazing things that we've done as a human race. You're <laughs> like, oh yeah, it wasn't anything special. It's like, oh yeah, because I work there, I know this stuff. Yeah, it makes you feel better about yourself, and it makes other people feel like you know something just by criticizing it. That's so true, man. I, I did a, a research or I did a reading class on like theology and the philosophy of mind. So I was just deep into philosophy of mind stuff. And I watched Ex Machina and I was like, well, you know, they didn't technically get this right and that right. And there's, and then I realized exactly what you said and where it's like, well, for one, I'm not even an expert in this. So I shouldn't be all like patting myself on the back. Two, it's a movie. And so they have, to, you know, and three, they did a really good job of looking into all this different stuff and explaining it in a way that like on the popular level could still be interesting. I was just like totally wrecked uh, being like, what an idiot. Why was I just going off? I wasn't talking to anyone. It was just me by myself watching the movie. But uh, you, the, the higher power thing is interesting, man, because uh, so for our audience, they don't, they don't know or anything, but you're a Christian, right? Yes. So you're a Christian studying this stuff. Do you ever just ponder on like, what is God doing with black holes? Like, why would God make a black hole or any, like, did he have to do this? Is this like he was, or or was this like a beauty thing where he's like, I'm going to put a black hole in the middle of this and I'm going to let them discover that. Or is it like, no, if I want to make the universe I want to make, I need to have black holes and dark matter. A total speculation. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I can't say I think about this too much. I usually think about theology and science in two different parts of my brain. Not yeah. like, not that they don't communicate. Right. But just in, in general, my science thinking is never big picture day to day basis. It's like, oh, crap, I left a semicolon out of this line of the code. Like, <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's the majority of the thinking in that respect. Well, and you you but, just completed your Ph.D. last year, too. So you're yeah. like super coming off of intense, like uh, intricate into, you know, in-depth uh, specifics. Yes. So that just for our listeners too, like. I've, I've had another guy who's working on his PhD uh, in philosophy, epistemology, and it just, he's so deep into the literature concerning what he's writing about that it's even hard for him to recall some like metaphysics kind of stuff because it's like, dude, I'm not studying that right now. You know, I spent four yeah. years researching this. Yeah. I mean, I, it's even like I'm staying with my parents right now. Mm. And sometimes it's like they're talking, they're trying to, maybe not necessarily trying to get my attention, but they're trying to have like a casual conversation. And I'm just sitting there like walking, staring at the wall, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm thinking about like how to debug my code and, and what's going to happen and what needs to happen. Uh, that's, yeah, your brain just, you have to be like hyper-focused. Otherwise you won't make it very far. 
Yeah, that makes sense, man. I'm I'm not that far yet. I'm just working on a couple master's degrees here, but I'm I'm working on a my master's thesis. And if if something comes to me and I'm like, oh, that's a sentence I need, and it's gonna really be a good transition, then I have to go run to my journal and write it down. Cause I'm yeah. like, I'm not losing this. I, I spent too long working on this. And it's like, dude, I'm so sorry. Hold on, give me one second. I gotta write this down. Yeah. Yeah, but in terms of black holes and their theological importance, I would say I I see it as like like for some reason the church in like whenever that was like Galilean times got like really wedded to the idea that we're the center of the universe, the center of everything. Right. But like, I feel like that wasn't even theologically sound kind of reasoning. It's no, like, no, it was just a piece of about us. Right. And it's clear. It's a lot of, there's a lot of passages where it's just talking about like how great the heavens are and how, and like all the things that God created showing how magnificent they are. And it's like, what are you, oh man, like Job, like he spent right. the last couple of chapters being like, I did this and I did this and and I did this. Do you know about this? Do you know about this? And Job's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I love it. It's my favorite uh, part of the Bible. I yeah. feel like that's like, yeah, I feel that that paragraph that those couple chapters are like, that's what science is to mm. us. Like that, that science is an alternative way of doing the same thing. Like, well, did you know about, oh, you guys are so smart, huh? Well, what about black holes? And what about neutron stars? And what about gamma ray bursts? And hey, guess what? Now there's fast radio bursts and you don't even know what they are yet. Huh? It's like the, the universe is so massive and there's so much cool stuff there that it's like, well, if the greater the complexity and beauty of creation the greater you would infer the complexity and beauty of the creator. That's mm. what I guess. Dude, I love that. I love that you, you put it. I, I think um, there's a, you just opened up a can of worms about like simplicity and that's a whole doctrine in theology. And some people are like, yeah. Yeah, but, but that's all right. The listeners at home could freak out about that. Um, what the point that you made about, oh, it's like, for, what is it like? Uh, no, yeah. Well, whether God is composed of parts, does he have properties? Yeah. And if he does have properties, you have this like bootstrapping, like, uh, either these properties exist outside of God and he's dependent on them, but God's not dependent on anything. Or, you know, they're somehow like uh, an ad hoc, like, well, no, they just belong to him. So I've, I've on the podcast, we've been going, I've been having people on to talk about it, but uh, cause you know, uh, Richard Dawkins would say like, well, if this universe is so complex, then its designer must be way more complex. And it's not a good theory in science to posit something more complex as an explanation. And so then people are like, that's exactly why we need simplicity. And it's like, well, all right, dude, the principle of parsimony doesn't need to be brought in every second on everything. When you don't have an explanation, there's an explanation over here, whether it's simplicity, a God of simplicity or a God of parts, that's a better explanation in this scenario. And, Sorry to, to go on a, on a thing here. make a theological statement when I said that. I know, I know. That's, I was trying to preempt that. I think that he had the, has the power to make something so yes. complex and the mind to make something. Yes. Like his mind is so much higher and greater than anything we can imagine. Dude, that is awesome. And and I think what you were saying with Job, where it's like, it's just an extended, science is an extended paragraph. You know, it's another one of those statements that God was saying, do you know yeah. this? And I love that because it resonates. Um, I, one of my professors, D.A. Carson, did that in uh, in class last semester. And he was like, 
he just extended that himself and he's like well job he's like today it'd be different today it'd be like well job is the electron a uh particle or is it a wave why don't you tell me because you know yeah. job does it yeah. collapse you know did you collapse the wave function by observing it you tell me if you know so much job and it was just like yes dude that's awesome man i yeah. love that i love it that he never actually answered he never answered really what job's question was he was just like on him so much he's like you're asking the wrong question yeah yeah you just answer the question you should have asked yeah uh dude that's so cool man i i'm i'm all stoked on that um just i don't know if i'm i'm kind of scared to bring this up but um does your so you're not a uh, stellar dude but does the two-way uh speed of light like mess with your understanding of creation like what do you mean the two-way well i guess like we don't know the one-way speed of light or whatever right because we can only observe the two-way speed of light i actually am not i have no idea what you're talking about oh okay so maybe it's it's something that that um i've heard more in apologetic circles but like in order to study or in order to know the speed of light uh you have to you have to know it's two way speed, like how, how far, how long it takes to go to like a mirror and come back because every other way, uh, if you used like a clock because of, because of Einstein, right. You move, you, yeah. you take two clocks together, but then you move them. Now they're out of sync. And so in order to combat that out of syncness, whatever you need, like the, you have to presuppose the speed of light, but that's what you're trying to search for anyways. And so I'm not doing a great job here of explaining it, but um, other astrophysicists or whatever. I haven't thought about this at all, and I haven't really heard it discussed. So everything I say is going to be out of complete ignorance. But I think it's true that the fact that the speed of light is constant is a postulate of the theory of relativity, which then leads to everything else, which then seems to describe reality very well. So yeah. I so, imagine it being impossible to remove that postulate because if you could, then it wouldn't be a postulate. Yeah. Because so we have a postulate in a theory. If if in retrospect you say actually this theory comes out of only two postulates instead of three, you would have removed them. So I can imagine it being impossible to measure to actually prove that statement. Prove the one way speed of light. Yeah, something yeah. like that. That's what people have said. And and it comes up in Christian circles because they say if you're a young earth creationist or if you're an old earth creationist and you're debating each other on how old is, is the earth, because it seems theologically like it's this old and, but it seems scientifically like it's this old. And so what do we do with this? Well, what about ancient starlight? You know, so it, it takes, it takes the, this stars over here and it would take this many years for it to travel to us, but we see the star right now. So it must the universe must be at least this old uh, because that's how far speed of light, uh, how long speed of light takes to get to us. So this many years because we see the star and then someone goes, comes up and says, yeah, but we don't know the one way speed of light. We only know the two way. And so maybe the one way speed of light or or the first path getting, uh, getting there, if you're measuring it takes this long, but then maybe the return is instantaneous. And it's like, well, how does that work? I don't know how that works at all. What do you mean? Why don't you just divide it by two? Uh, you know, take the two-way speed of light, divide it by two, half and half. That makes sense. 
And then, I mean, these guys are like physicists or whatever. And like, well, things are weird. The, the world's weird. So you can postulate that, that it's, you know, one and a half there and a half back, or it's one there and zero back. And I don't actually know. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have a dude on to talk about this, but the world is super weird, man. The, the speed of light stuff is bonkers. But I was just asking that because I was wondering for you personally as a Christian, how, how um, your work on the universe uh, impacts your view of the creator and, and like how, how old the earth is and stuff like that. I generally, in terms of like how old the earth is and whether the days are like seven actual days or seven mm-hmm. periods of time, the yom thing. Yeah. Yom. Yom. Or yom. 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 I feel yeah. like, it's very clear that Genesis was not written as a science textbook. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of not an important question in terms of everything else. And I, I'm, I mean, it's just one of those things like free will versus eternism that I'm perfectly happy to just say, I am not going to be able to make any kind of conclusion on this mm. other than that. I know that I'm, I have the faith that science that God would not deceive us in the sense that if science is really showing one thing pretty definitively and any apparent contradiction with there's, I, so starting there's never going to be a, a contradiction from between scripture and science, as long as we interpret scripture and science in the correct way, yeah. which is impossible for us to do completely accurately because we're mortal beings who have imperfect knowledge. So if I tend to lean on the, the uh, like days in Genesis as periods of time, and then whatever method we're using for estimating the age of the universe seems to be pretty reliable. And then, so then just read the passages in Genesis, not necessarily through that lens, but just, get what like because i feel like that's never emphasized as anything important in the in any book the 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 days of genesis you're saying yeah yeah so the earth is the yeah man i i actually kind of hate this conversation uh this topic i shouldn't have brought it up but uh because it's people get very dogmatic on both sides yeah. You know, and, the, you know, like uh, the science minded folks are like, dude, you cannot believe this. You make us all look so stupid. And the the conservative more the conservative side in this debate, the young earth folks are like, dude, this matters for Jesus's genealogy, because in the beginning he created Adam and Eve and Adam is traced all the way down to Jesus. So, like, there's no gaps here where, where you're finding like enough room to fit in millions of years. And like you can go to like there like an early an early church father uh augustine if you if you want to call him an early church father he's not that early but he he has a model of like old earth young creation where it's like god created the cosmos the earth was was uh uh formless and void and what's that tohu vabohu yeah and then on that where he said like a hundred times (laughs) that's great man and and then he uh and then he then he formed it in in six literal days or whatever and so 
that like complex model would have an, an old earth with like radioactive isotope kind of stuff where you could you could look at some carbon dating and all that good stuff that would give you an old earth but then a young creation which would accommodate the uh the genealogy of christ from adam and so well then you got some some discrepancies with the the darwinist folks who were talking about you know there's got to be like ten thousand humans in order for us to have the genetic variability that we have today and so it's a whole mess, dude. And uh, I'm pretty like not dogmatic on it. Like like you said, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to you on that. And a lot of my friends, a lot of people listening are going to be upset both ways, which is fine. That's good. I like making people upset. I, I think there's other things that are more important for me to focus on, but I'm really glad that the other people are debating on this stuff because I'll, I'll just go read your books. It'll be great. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think... I take a hard non-dogmatic stance. That's my <laughs> hard stance. Yeah. It doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't affect me in science and it doesn't affect me in like my theology. So it, mm. it's not an issue that I incredibly focus on. Yeah. Other than that, I'm using the exact same physical laws that they use to determine the age of the universe scientifically to do my research. Yeah. And those seem, those laws seem to be like, we use those for everything else. Why should we not use them also to estimate? Like, it's like, if you don't trust them to, to age the universe, why do you trust them to make your smartphone or trust mm. them to, yeah. like, use yeah. yes or anything like that? Yeah, that's, I that's feel like a, there has to be some level of consistency. It's like, you can throw out the science, but throw out all the science connected to the science that you're throwing out. Otherwise, you're just sort of deceiving yourself. Yeah, picking and choosing, right? Um, so I just, I think what someone would say to that is like, uh, yeah, God created with an, with a, an appearance of age, not to deceive us, but because that's how you create things, you create them working. And so he didn't create Adam as a baby. And if you brought a doctor from today, you know, uh, he'd look at him and say, yeah, this guy looks like he's 19 years old, but oh, yeah. surprise doctor. He's 30 seconds. And so I'm just, I'm just saying yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. someone yeah. in the comments, cause I know it's coming. You guys, we know we've, you know, like we thought through it. Um, that's fine. You know, comment what, what you like and, uh, give us some resources. That's cool too. Um, Sean, man, this has been so great, dude. We've, we come really far from your, uh, specifics. I've made you go back a couple of years and think through some hard stuff, uh, and remember some things like the forces. And then we went all the way to Genesis. So we've covered a, a lot of stuff here, man. Yes. Uh, I'd love to have you back on. Would you be open to, to yeah, coming yeah, on in our time? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can even fun. keep going now, but if you need to go. I have, I have a uh, old Testament class right now, actually. Okay. So okay. You know, I'll, I'll tell her that you don't think uh, Genesis is important for. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, throw out the book of Genesis. <laughs> we start with Exodus. It doesn't matter to him at all, man. Yeah. Uh, this is great. How did Israelites get here? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, that matters. Um, all right. So this has been Parker's Pensies. As always, all glory to God. Uh, this is going to have to do it for now. But uh, Sean's going to come back on. We're going to talk more stuff. Blow your mind. Blow my mind. I'm pumped for it. Peace. Peace.